a question to ask you. Do you want to get to know God better this year? 2019, is this the year you're in Bible study, attending church, maybe in a community group, serving in the community, whatever it would be? Does your heart want to know God better this year? Do you want to have a more powerful experience of prayer? Do you want to have greater discernment about the decisions that you make? Do you want to feel personally awakened to the activity of God in your life? I know I do. And you know, it's interesting because it's often in the times of suffering when we feel most intimate with God, isn't it? Sometimes if you look back over your life, you say, you know, in those times of suffering, those times when I felt most helpless, those times when I felt most desperate, those were the times where we experienced most tangibly God's presence or his comfort or the, the power of prayer or the, the, the truth of his word. When we're in times of suffering, those are the times when we pray for deliverance and we look for evidence that God is with us. But I want to tell you that there's also another time in our lives that I think is a time when we're equally desperate for God, and those are in times of service to him. When, when God calls us to do something beyond our human capacity, beyond our resources, beyond our experience, and we know that it's only by his Holy Spirit that we can accomplish that task at hand, and so we end up begging God for his power to show up in our time of need. Has anybody experienced that? That desperation. If God doesn't show up, you can't do this. And so suffering and service, I believe, are both opportunities for us to get to know God more deeply and experience his power and presence in our life. And so today, as we're going to look at God's call on Moses' life, I'm really praying for you that you will be encouraged in your own walk with the Lord to know this, to know that God will always equip you for the work that he calls you to do. You can know that, that he will always equip you for the work that he calls you to do. And we're going to look at Moses. We're going to see, first of all, God's, um, Moses observes God in the burning bush. He receives God's call in Exodus 3, 1 through 10. And then we're going to see how Moses responds. He objects, actually, to God's call to serve him in Exodus 3, 11 through 4, 17. I love that what we learn is that, um, that, that we can trust that if God is calling us to something, he is going to equip us. But guess what? He does not equip us in advance of our obedience. We must respond in faith by obeying, and then he provides the equipping that we need. And then we're going to see that with Moses as well. So let's look at how Moses encounters God in Exodus 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, when we left Moses last week, you remember he was making a new life for himself. He was shepherding in the wilderness. He was watching over the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. After he impulsively killed an Egyptian, if you remember, who was beating up a Hebrew man, Moses then feared for his life. He ran to the wilderness, and he's been hiding from Pharaoh and anyone else that might want to bring him to justice for his sins. Forty years have now passed. That's a long time to be out in the wilderness. 
all of his high education, all of his cultural experiences, all of his military training, they're now distant memory as he spends his days in obscurity. He's alone in the desert, he's alone in the wilderness, he's tending to sheep, and he is in a totally different school of learning now. God is teaching him how to lead, how to care, how to protect large groups of people who are not unlike wandering sheep. Last week, I sat in a discussion group where a woman in the group explained what it's like to lead sheep. And boy, there are some stories about how unintelligent sheep are, how stubborn and how foolish, how they try to kill themselves, literally, just by falling on their backs so they can't get upright again. It doesn't sound unlike people to me. So God is at work. He is trying to shape Moses into the humble servant that he's going to use to deliver his people from the oppression of slavery under Pharaoh's rule. Um, Let's look at uh, verse 1 in chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. I brought a map to show you so you can see that Midian is in that area of land on this side. You see Midian is over here. Egypt is over here. And the Sinai Peninsula is the wilderness. And this is the area we're going to be spending a lot of time in with the, Egypt, with the Israelites after they leave Egypt. Down at the bottom is um, what is believed to be the, the Mount Sinai region. And um, this is the mountain where God is going to later come down in cloud, fire, and earthquake to meet with the children of Israel. This is the same place where God is going to give his law to Moses, the Ten Commandments. And Mount Horeb is thought to be one of those mountains in what we consider Mount Sinai. So um, the next picture will show you a picture today of Mount Sinai. So do you see, that's Mount Sinai. So do you see there are different, like, mountainous bumps in the geography there of the land? Mount Horeb was thought to be one of those, but collectively it's known as Mount Sinai. So look at this picture for a moment and imagine spending 40 years dwelling in this dry land with sheep and think about what Moses is learning. He's learning the geography. He's learning the inherent dangers of the land. He's learning where the resources are located, where the water and the food for the sheep is located. So God is preparing him for a mighty task. And nothing in Moses' humble experience during this season of his life is going to be wasted. Not one day of it. But then, interestingly, in the quietness of the desert, God broke his silence. There's no record before of God ever speaking to Moses before this moment in verse 2. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. The Hebrew word for bush literally means thorny shrubs. So can you imagine how many thorny shrubs line the desert floor, and yet God ignites this shrub with an inextinguishable fire that doesn't burn it up? And of course, this captured Moses' curiosity. And so as he looks closer, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the flames. This was the Lord God himself. It's called a theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God to human beings that's actually tangible to human senses. Now, this is not the first time that a theophany has occurred in our study so far this year. 
Um, twice, God appeared to Abraham in a theophany. First was when Abraham first arrived in the land that God had promised him. It was in Genesis 12, 7 through 9. Then again, if you remember that scene where two angels and the Lord uh, accompanied uh, went together to Abraham's house to meet with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, 1 through 33. One of those was the angel of the Lord. It was God himself. And then later, if you remember in Genesis 32, when, when Jacob wrestled with God, um, Jacob had a theophany. And actually, two of those, the last two, are considered to be Christophanies. Christophanies are pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. So Christ became incarnate at the birth, which we celebrated at Christmas, but he, you know, was in the beginning with God. He was God. And there are times in the Old Testament where there are Christophanies, where there are, there are appearances of him before he was incarnate. Now, it's interesting that most people believe that this encounter with Moses was a classic theophany because of the fire, but it could be that it was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit actually appearing together in the fire, the angel of the Lord, the fire of God, the Spirit of God. Um, it was a classic theophany, a, a, manif a tangible manifestation of God in the flames of this burning bush. Now, fire is often associated with the presence of God. Later, God's going to manifest himself um, with Israel in a pillar of fire that's going to lead them by night. It's going to be a cloud by day and fire by night, and it's going to guide them and protect them both. So look at verse 4. It says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. God calls Moses by name. God is knowable, personal, communicative. He knows Moses' name. He knows your name. He knows my name. Think about that day when you are going to hear the audible voice of God call your name. Say your name out loud. Won't that be an amazing moment? And Moses responds, here I am. So simple. And yet that truly is the only reasonable response for anyone who hears the voice of God beckoning his or her attention to simply say, here I am. And then he says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Why remove his sandals? Surely they're dirty, right? He's been in the desert, so maybe he needed to remove them so he could approach God in cleanliness and purity. But his feet are dirty too. They're sandals after all. So if his shoes are dirty, his feet are dirty. And yet, there's something about being barefoot that is a sign of also being a servant. Servants and slaves went barefoot, so maybe that is a sign of submission, coming into God's presence in submission. Priests often approached God with very little clothes on, and that symbolized that there were no barriers between them and God. It's possible that removing his sandals was a sign of, of intimacy, of preparedness to come into the presence of God. We don't know. But the word holy, this is the first time in Scripture that this word has been used to describe the ground that Moses is now standing on. So regardless of the reasons that God asked him to remove his sandals, notice how quick Moses was to obey. He took his sandals off and he approached God on holy ground. Verse 6 says, he says, God says, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now here God is assuring Moses 
He's revealing his identity. He's saying, I am the God of the patriarchs. I am the same God who promised to make Abraham's descendants into a mighty nation, who promised to take the people of Israel and carry them to a promised land, who promised through the lineage of Abraham, that's you, Moses, to bring the descendant that would result in the Messiah. And so he's saying, I, he's basically saying, remember me, I am the one who promised to redeem my people. And why was Moses afraid to look at God? Was it because in that moment he maybe felt the shame of his sin, killing that Egyptian back in the days of Egypt? Or maybe it was because the brilliance, the radiance of the fire and the presence of God was so intense that he couldn't even look upon it with his own eyes? Or maybe he felt the power of the Almighty God speaking to him through the flames in that moment and just felt that inner sense of awe and reverence that was a kind of a reverent fear that he would have felt. You can imagine how much authority was in the God of the flames. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Have you ever doubted whether God truly cares about your suffering? Have you ever wondered whether God really hears your cries, whether he really hears your prayers, whether he really wants to relieve you of your pain? Just listen to how God responds to the suffering of his people. He says, I have seen their affliction. I have heard their cries. I know their sufferings. I have come down. Their cries have come up to me. I have seen the oppression. God knows exactly what you and I are going through in our seasons of suffering. He sees, he cares, he's aware, and best of all, he is moved. He is moved by our cries. He is moved by our prayers. He is moved by our pleas, and he wants to relieve our misery. He has a plan for our deliverance as well as he did for the Israelites' deliverance. Listen to, to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven through 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That is God's word to us. And I imagine in this moment that Moses is feeling somewhat dumbstruck by this experience. This powerful experience of the burning bush and the voice of God. But nothing was more shocking than what he heard next. Verse 10, he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God is saying, You, Moses, you are going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, this wasn't an invitation to join God's work if Moses wasn't busy, if he was available. 
hey, if you have time, if, you so, if you're so inclined, I get, have an opportunity for you. You can, if you want, go to Pharaoh and tell my people to let them go. That's not what happens here. This was a direct call to action from God himself. God had a specific work for Moses to do, and he had been being prepared for it all his life. Every single day of his life was a preparation for what God had planned for Moses. And the first truth I want to share with you is that God reveals himself to those he calls. God reveals himself to those he calls. When he calls us to serve him, he, he is revealing himself to us. I want you to think of all the ways, first of all, that God has just revealed himself to Moses, just in looking at these first ten verses. First, he revealed his holiness to Moses in the fire that burned but did not destroy the bush. Moses got to see this powerful holiness of God. He reveals his character to Moses as a personal communicative God that calls Moses by name, talks to him directly. He reveals his relationship with Moses' forefathers, the patriarchs. He is the God of Moses' forefathers. He's the one who also fulfills his promises to his people. He reveals his compassion for the people of Israel. We see that he sees their suffering and he is, feels, feels for their misery. He reveals his plan to deliver them out of bondage and to bring them to a better place. And he reveals his call specifically upon Moses' life to go and be God's instrument of redemption. Whenever God calls you to serve him in some way, no matter how great or how small that calling is, it's an opportunity for you to get to know God more intimately. Because it's when we're asked to do something that is much greater than our natural abilities, our resources, our own talents, that's when we become most dependent on him and on his provision. That's when we really learn how trustworthy and faithful God is. It's when we step out of that place of our own comfort and we step into a place of fear and insecurity where God meets us with himself. And that's when we experience the miracle of his strength and wisdom and power that is really unexplainable except by his divine provision. Has anyone experienced that before? Can you think of a time when you experience this in your own life, where you experience this? It was in February of 2003 when God called me to be the teaching leader of Bible Study Fellowship. And it was a decision that was fraught with all kinds of challenges, which I will share with you in just a moment. But, but I, by saying yes, I really started on a journey of studying God's Word at a very, very deep level for what has now been 16 years. My husband, Bob, became a teaching leader four days after me, so we started on this journey together, studying God's Word at a very, very deep level, being immersed really every day and for endless hours on the weekends, knowing God's Word and, um, and preparing to teach others. And this totally changed my life, and it not only changed my life, it changed our life together as husband and wife. And so whatever came forth from our teaching, by God's grace, is secondary to the treasure that God poured into my heart from those endless hours of spending in his word, knowing him, the ways that he personally revealed himself to me during these last 16 years have been immeasurable. 
It's been the greatest gift that God has ever given me is a call to serve him that required so much dependence upon him and so much trust in him. And what he gave me was a deep knowledge of him that I don't think I could have ever gotten in any other way. Sometimes God extends resistible calls to us. These are opportunities, invitations to be part of his his work that are offered to us as a grace, as a personal blessing. Um, there are, as we know, there are joys that come when we're stretched in our faith, when we are challenged to learn new skills, when we have to grow in dependence upon God, when we have to pray for the ability to do what he asks us to do, or just the joys of getting to be in fellowship together. These are all blessings that come out of opportunities to serve him. And God graciously invites us to join him in his work, but the opportunity is ours to take, or it can be resisted. Uh, If we choose to say no, someone else will get the blessing of that opportunity. I think I could have resisted. I think I could have resisted God's invitation to become the teaching leader in that day, and someone else would have received that blessing instead of me, but what a loss it would be to me. I think back now, I would not be the same person today. I certainly wouldn't be here if I had resisted that opportunity then. There are other kinds of calls that come into our life that are, I consider, irresistible calls. These are assignments that come into our lives as a part of God's sovereign plan. And though we may try to resist them, as we see Moses trying to do in just a few minutes, God's will prevails. I think in particularly, for me, being Adam's mom in particular, being the mom of Adam with his unique set of circumstances and challenges in life was an irresistible call that God placed upon my life. And it surely prepared me to say yes to many resistible calls that came later because of the things God taught me through that other experience. So God uses every facet of our lives to equip us for his call, and nothing is wasted, which is what we see exactly as we look at the life of Moses. Often God calls us to a specific assignment, and it's the answering of that call. It's our willing obedience to say yes, Lord, to that call, where we discover the greatest revelation of God's character. It's as we step out in faith to join him in his work that we get to know him most intimately and we experience his equipping most tangibly. What special task has God called you to or is he calling you to in this moment? Maybe you already know what your call is. Maybe you've already stepped into that assignment. God has made it crystal clear and you're in the midst of it right now. Maybe you're feeling stretched because of stepping into this new assignment. Maybe you're feeling a little scared, but you're trusting God, and he is providing for you faithfully along the way. For some of you, maybe you don't know what your calling is. You don't know what your assignment is from the Lord. Well, let me give you some things to think about. Will you just think about what kinds of needs have come to your attention recently? Has someone shared a specific opportunity for you to serve in a, in a special way? Do you have resources of time, of money, of skill that can be used to help someone else? Because in my experience, God's call, though sometimes it comes very strong and very divinely, it often comes in the form of opportunities, doors that you're invited to walk through. Um, So think about that. What opportunities do you have to serve the Lord? Now, some of you may think, I'm too busy. My schedule's too busy. I don't have time to serve the Lord. I have bad news for you. God calls busy people to serve him. Um, He 
Being busy is not an excuse not to obey. It's an excuse to trust him all the more. So how will you respond to his call to serve him the next time you feel that tap of the Holy Spirit on your shoulder? I think the very best yes we can say is, here I am. Here I am, Lord. Use me. Well, let's look to see how Moses responded. Moses did not respond very well. In fact, I think Moses freaks out a little bit, as we see in um, Exodus 3.11 through 4.17. Now, I think I'm pretty sure that Moses wasn't hearing God correctly at this point. I think Moses surely had thought that God had intended him to be the deliverer of Israel, which is what prompts his insecurities and his inadequacies to flare up. But in reality, God had only called Moses to be an instrument of his deliverance work. It is God himself who is going to be the deliverer of his people. Moses is just getting to play a part in that. But at this point, Moses can only see all the reasons why he can't possibly accept God's call. And so he begins to tell God all the problems with his plans, spelling out what I see as five objections. Objection number one is he says, well, who am I? Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This sounds really humble at first, but Moses is actually looking to himself rather than looking to God. I mean, let's think about this for a moment. Think about Moses' life. Had he forgotten the power of God to save a small Hebrew baby who floated down a river into the arms of the Pharaoh princess, of, of the princess of Egypt? I mean, had he lost his compassion for all of his friends and family that were still living in Egypt? Had 40 years in the desert extinguished his desire to serve the Lord and rescue his people? God assures him. He says, well, I will be with you. Verse 12, he says, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God is saying, not only am I with you, but you are going to have success. We're going to return right here to this mountain. You're going to be with all my people, and you are going to worship me. Now, notice this is not an if-then scenario. This is not This is a declaration. God is saying this will surely happen, which gives us a clue that Moses is not going to be successful in his objections to God's plan. This is actually going to happen. He's going to return to this mountain with God's people and worship God. Now, what happens here is that the next objections we hear are not any longer a lack of confidence in himself. It was appropriate for Moses to express a lack of inadequacy and confidence in himself. That was an appropriate objection. But what happens next is a lack of faith, and I think that what we see next is actually sin. Objection number two, he says, I don't know your name. Then Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? Now Moses did know the stories of the patriarchs, so he did hear growing up that God's name was Jehovah, which meant Lord. So what Moses is really saying is he's saying, well, what does your name mean? What kind of God are you? How can I convince Pharaoh that you sent me if nobody there knows who you are? Because the, Egyptian, the Egyptians served many gods. They served fertility gods and river gods and animal gods. So he's saying, Moses is saying, well, who will you be to them? What kind of God will you be to them? And so God assures him, and he says, I am who I am. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
Now, in the original language, I am is represented in four Hebrew characters, Y-H-W-H, which we say as Yahweh. That's how we pronounce it. This is the Hebrew verb to be. So God is declaring that he is the self-existent one who always was, who always is, and who always will be. He is the faithful, dependable God who calls himself I am. Kind of like enough said, I am. And what God's name meant for Moses was I am and I am here for you and that's all you need to tell the Egyptians. It's interesting that later Jesus also identifies himself as I am. He speaks this way to, to reveal his identity as God. In John 8:58, Jesus said, "Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am." And then there's a lot of I am's in the Bible, just a couple to to remind you of them. John 6, 48, he says, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Jesus clearly identifies himself as God in the I am statements in scripture. But because God then knows the beginning from the end, he then tells Moses in verses 16 through 22 exactly what will happen when he returns to Egypt, which we'll have fun seeing it unfold exactly as God foretells as we go in future lessons. But the third objection that Moses says is he says, well, they won't believe me. So Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So Moses is now actually confessing his own unbelief. He likely fears ridicule that he experienced the last time he tried to help the Hebrew people by killing that Egyptian guard. Remember, they just mocked him, and they said, who made you the savior of us? And so Moses is still, though, ignoring God's assurance that God is going to be with him. Moses still won't accept that he is going into this with all the power of God himself. And so God so graciously comforts Moses' fears by giving him a preview of his power. Assurance number three, God shows him three signs of his power. God is not sending Moses to Pharaoh as a rickety old 80-year-old shepherd withered by sun and dry condition who has nothing to show for, to back his words. He is sending him with these mighty signs of his own power, and he shows him three examples. First, he tells him to take his staff and throw it on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And then when he grabs its tail and picks it up, it turns back to a staff. And then he tells him to take his hand and stick it into his cloak, and he pulls it out, and it's leprous. And then he sticks it back again, and he pulls it out, and it's healthy. And then he tells him, and then you're going to grab some water when you're there out of the Nile, and you're going to pour it on the ground. It's going to turn into blood. He shows them, like, I am powerful, and you are going to confront Pharaoh with my power. Moses gives objection number four. Well, I can't speak very well. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Seemed like Moses used to be eloquent when he was educated in the days in Egypt. Maybe Moses had lost his wit for hot debates or stimulating conversations while watching sheep for 40 years. But certainly he was well-educated. He was capable of communicating intelligently with Pharaoh. Remember, he grew up in the palace. He had not lost his ability to speak. But how often do we also use the same excuses? 
Um, how often when someone is asks us to pray in public or to lead a devotional or to speak to someone about Christ, do we say, oh, oh I, don't, I don't know how to do that. I get nervous in public. I don't know what to say. I'm not very good at words. The reality is that, that I am is all we need in every circumstance of life, so it's foolish for us ever to argue with God that I am not because he is. And so Moses is making the mistake again at looking at himself instead of looking to God. And we do this every time we forsake an opportunity to trust God to help us communicate something about him to someone else. We look at ourselves instead of looking to him to trust that he will give us just the words to say. So God gives him assurance number four. He says, I will teach you what to say. He said, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth, and I will teach you what to say. So God promises to provide just the words that Moses needs in the moment that he speaks. But he's not going to have them in advance. He is going to need to trust God to equip him in the moment. And it's the same for us. The equipping comes in the moment, not always in advance of what we need. Objection number five, he says, send somebody else. But he says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Interestingly, Moses finally is addressing him as Lord here, but he's blatantly refusing to obey God's commands even after God has graciously assured him, think about it, he's told him the outcome. You are going to do this. My people are going to be at this mountain worshiping me. It's going to happen. He's graciously demonstrated his power He showed him the power that he's going to have. He has promised to guide him with the exact words to say. He doesn't need to be eloquent. He just needs to open his mouth and trust that God will fill him with the words. So assurance number five, God says, Aaron will join you. But notice that it's in his anger that God accommodates Moses by sending his brother Aaron to assist him. Verse 14 says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now, sending Aaron to accomplish Moses, sending Aaron to accomplish Moses' lack of faith is going to bring far-reaching consequences. Mark your mind for what happens when the golden calf is made. And who leads the charge in building the golden calf? It's going to be Aaron. I think Moses is going to really regret that he didn't trust God to work through him alone because Moses didn't need Aaron. God had promised that he would provide everything that Moses needed to speak to Pharaoh. Now, one of the painful judgments that God can send upon disobedient people is to let them have their own way. Why is it so often that we think that our way is better than God's way? It's never better than God's way. The truth is that God provides himself as the answer to our needs or our perceived weaknesses. God provides himself as the answer to our needs or our perceived weaknesses. I've shared this with you, some of you before, but for many, many years, I suffered from terrible stage fright. I was a dancer in my youth, and I did great in rehearsals, 
in class, in practice, but when we performed, when there was an audience and the curtains opened and the lights went on, my knees shook so terribly I couldn't maintain my balance. In my 20s, I was part of a church drama team. I love bringing the arts into church and using it as expression of worship. But every week before I had to get on the stage, I was literally in the bathroom sick to my stomach. Later, they thought because I was so polished on stage that I could lead church announcements. And every time they gave me the mic, my hand would shake so hard I could barely control it. It took away from everything I was saying because my body was trembling so badly. When God asked me to teach his word at BSF, trust me, I was the least likely person to be asked to serve him in this way. I was not qualified in any other way other than I was a sincere believer who loved the Lord and who was willing to say yes if I knew that God was asking me to do something. But still, I didn't have any education in teaching or in the Bible other than attending a Bible study, and I was so terrified. And I remember the first day of standing at the podium in Lake Grove Press, I, was, I had a moment of fight or flight. Have you ever had those moments where every, it's almost like it takes over your body and everything in you is run. And I remember standing there and all these people were sitting out in the, in the a sanctuary and I knew that there was a door by the choir life loft that went straight out to the parking lot. And I literally had to grab like this because I thought if I run out this door, I'm never coming back. It was terrifying. So I can identify with Moses. Actually, Moses is the person in the Bible I identify more with than any other person in the Bible. But it's also Moses' story that has shaped my story. Because I saw how Moses objected to God and how it, it was sorrowful to me that why couldn't he trust him, that God was going to display his power and his words, and that convicted my own life. And so I decided to obey God no matter what the cost after studying Moses' life. And it didn't happen. Like, my stage fright didn't go away overnight. But God has been faithful through with, to provide his spirit for me, to guide me in writing and in speaking so that I could bring him glory in a place where I know I have nothing in my own ability to put me here except for God himself. Nobody knows more than me what a miracle the work of God is in my life. So what about you? What arguments are you using to tell God you can't do it? What are you telling God that you're not equipped to do? that he's stirring in your heart to do. Has he, he has given you spiritual gifts to use in the body of Christ. You are needed. It is important. You have something to contribute that nobody else can contribute in just the way you can. Because of your walk with Christ, because of your history, because of your faith, because of your story, you are an important part of the whole how might God, how might you rely on God to strengthen you in your area of perceived weakness? It's not about you. It's about him. It's all about him. He is inviting you to be an instrument in his hands. The blessing is all yours. And it becomes yours as you avail yourself to him and you choose to, choose to trust him in his equipping. 
I'm so thankful that Moses did choose to obey. And as our chapter ends, we see Moses getting his family in order. His family wasn't in order. He had not circumcised both of his sons. He needed to go into Egypt as an obedient follower, trusting God. And he does that. And Moses is going to confront Pharaoh with the mighty power of God, and the people of Israel are going to be freed, just as God said. So my challenge for you is, will you trust in God to provide the strength and empowerment for you to say yes to his call upon your life? Because here's a truth that I believe with all my heart, that the will of God will never lead you where the power of God cannot enable you. God will never lead you somewhere where his power can't enable you. So will you trust him? Stand with me and let's pray as we go out to our groups. Father, I want to stand before you in reverence this morning to acknowledge that you are God. You are powerful. Your presence is near. You call us. First, you call us by faith to come into relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. You call us to surrender our wills, to submit to you, to trust you, to obey you, to live in relationship with you. We thank you. That's a call we never want to resist. But Lord, we acknowledge that we don't always surrender our time, our hearts, our talents, our spiritual gifts. We often have excuses why we cannot be fully following in the calling that you've placed upon our lives. Lord, it's individual. You know um, what you are stirring in each of our hearts. But Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to have eyes to see Jesus, that we would step out in faith no matter what the places are of our lives that look scary, that we would trust that you will equip us, you will empower us, and that when we step out, it's such a blessing for us. We draw closer to you. We know you more intimately. We're so much more dependent. Lord, I would rather know you through service than have to learn things about you through suffering. I choose service. <laughs> Lord, for each of us, I pray that you would do a mighty work in us and give us the, the ability to say, yes, Lord, here I am. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.